when you speak the words of Shakespeare and someone tells you that what you did isn't good enough, there are a lot of ways you can feel. There are also, thankfully, a lot of ways to cope. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The scenario I just mentioned, being told your Shakespeare isn't good enough, that's something that happens surprisingly often to performers who are first-generation American or who are raised as bilingual speakers. Cynthia Santos de Cure and Micah Espinoza have first-hand experience with this from both sides of the footlights. They both grew up speaking English and Spanish. They both got careers in the theater. And today, they both work as voice coaches, helping people who have been told that their Shakespeare isn't good enough, both to bolster their confidence and to keep them moving forward in their careers. Cynthia is an assistant professor of acting at the Yale School of Drama. She was most recently the dialect coach for El Huracan at Yale Rep and she was the on-set dialect coach for Orange is the New Black on Netflix. Micah is a professor in the School of Film, Dance, and Theater at Arizona State University. Most recently, she was the voice and text director for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's world premiere production, La Comedia of Errors, a bilingual adaptation of Shakespeare's original play from the Play On translation by Christina Anderson. Cynthia and Micah have also written chapters in the new book, Shakespeare and Latinidad, that was edited by Carla Delegata and Trevor Buffone, where they talk about their work, unraveling the shame and discomfort that can often come up when actors are told that their Shakespeare isn't good enough. They joined us from studios in Arizona and Connecticut to talk about their experiences in this podcast that we call Any Accent Breaking From Thy Tongue. Cynthia and Micah are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Cynthia, can we talk about the concept of good enough? Because you wrote about, um, and this is a quote, doubts that our voices may not be good enough to tackle classical texts, that you deal with that. How often do actors express something like that to you? Well, when I was teaching in Los Angeles, I actually heard that a lot because I was teaching at a Hispanic-serving institution and a lot of the students were bilingual, Latinx, speaking both Spanish and English. And because Shakespeare is written in English, they thought that their English language comprehension and or linguistic ability was not good enough. Uh, unfortunately, I've heard it too many times to count. That just sounds so horrible. Micah, jump in here. I mean, it just sounds like this... Um, horrible weight of shame. Yeah, there is a weight of shame, but I think it's tied to policy. You know, over 20 years ago, there were laws that were passed in Arizona and California and Massachusetts. Over 20 years ago, there were English-only laws. So ELL learners were put into groups where they were taught only with ELL learners, so they weren't around their English-speaking peers, and now these laws have been repealed. But anywhere there is a dominant language, there's going to be shame, because one, you speak English better than you speak Spanish, or you speak Spanish better than you speak English, mm. and, and so it becomes a, a dance, a dynamic, and one has to build shame resilience. 
So what do people say then when they – what do your actors say when they talk about it? How, how do they articulate their worry and their shame to you? Micah? They explain it as a feeling of not belonging. Well, it actually just comes out as freeze for the actor. But I understand it as a feeling of not belonging. So both Cynthia and I are practitioners, we're actors, and we understand the experience. So I think that we bring that sensitivity to our coaching this um, dynamic of feeling ni de aquí, ni de allá, uh, either not Latino enough or tu Latina. I, you know, I enter the work with, it, with the students with, from a culturally inclusive perspective. I'm immediately thinking, I'm going to include your language, I'm going to include your culture, I'm going to include linguistic identity. So when I have a student who relates to me that they feel shame or they feel uh, the hesitation, I'm trying to empower them through this cultural lens, through this cultural idea that language is identity. You have to express yourself as you are, and hence you bring yourself into the text. You bring yourself into the work. When, when Latinx actors or actors in general have been uh, hesitant of speaking, you know, because of everything that Micah said and also because this whole uh, hierarchical idea of speech and that, that classical text should be spoken a certain way, when they express the hesitation... And by hesitation, do you mean yourself. they don't want to do it? They just don't want to do Shakespeare or they don't want to do the assignment you're giving them? Well, yes, or nervousness. Yeah. Nervousness, you know, anxiety. So whenever that happens, I try to just model culture. I bring my cultural identity into the mix. I tell them how my own story. I I will sometimes show how I can do the text in my own Puerto Rican idiolect, which is different than how I'm speaking to you right now. So I put myself in their shoes and to offer permission. So you to, model it. To see that they... I often model it, yes. Huh. I will sometimes... We'll start a monologue or a sonnet in a full Puerto Rican idiolect. I'll even say, hey, let's just think about it in Spanish. Cuando ello te atrevías, fuiste entonces, hombre. Like, let's think about it in Spanish. Okay, now let's think about the text in English. When you just do it, then you were a man. And even encourage them to bring their own idiolect and their rhythmic pattern into it so that it may sound later on like when you just do it then you were a man and then you you know and then you feel the power of the language but you feel it the power of the language from yourself not from some thing that someone else thinks that you should speak like spanglish also is a natural byproduct of that spanglish is tons of fun. It's exciting and refreshing to be allowed to have all that cultural bumping that Spanglish invites. Imagine that modern English might be a bit of a challenge at times. And then now the Queen's English, suddenly you go, oh, am I worthy of of the power of this um, language? And so that, that shame that we were talking about, the sword cuts in, in multi- ways and it cuts both ways and um, so um, I'll give you an example from Comedia of Errors in the play Antifilo de Mexico says en el mundo soy como una gota de agua buscando otra gota en medio del mar I am to the world I am like a drop of water 
then the ocean seeks another drop. So in that example, he's speaking Spanish and then immediately speaking in English. Uh, but then there's also Emilia, who is an expert code switcher. She just is able, um, in the play, she's lived in the U.S., but she's from Mexico. So she says, Nuestros queridos vecinos and all that are assembled in this place that by this sympathetic one day's air have suffered wrong, please come with us into the chapel here and we shall make full satisfaction. Thirty-three years I have but been in labor with you and you, my sons, until this present hour, my heavy burden not delivered. Mi comunidad, mi esposo y mis hijos both, and you, the calendars of their nativity, go to the baptism feast, una nuevo baptismo, and come with me after such long grief, such festivity. And so I, I try to play with my students in the same way, allowing them to change a word here and there as we're working on a sonnet or a monologue. Wow, that is really interesting, especially. And I don't want to jump over this conversation about the shame that is so much a part of this process. And I'm thinking back to something that, Micah, you uh, wrote about in your article, and you both have mentioned, um, memories of childhood, of not feeling empowered to speak. And you wrote of memories of being put in the corner at school for speaking Spanish, which kind of leapt out at me. I mean, it's like a kid with a dunce cap in the 1880s or something. When when, and where did that happen? Um, that happened in, in Texas in third grade, um, like I said, there were a whole generation of actors like myself who grew up not only with the laws, but, you know, our parents really wanted us to assimilate. And so the way to, to combat those shame memories is the thing that shame hates is being spoken about. So we got to talk about it and reclaim our right to Spanglish, our right to our bicultural identity. Uh, I grew up in Puerto Rico. And so I grew up with two languages, but one of them takes precedence over the other. And I also encountered something similar. I spent about six weeks in in an ESL class when I first moved to California from Puerto Rico. And this whole idea of the empowerment or of lack of empowerment or sort of lack of encouragement comes from this idea that perhaps... Uh, theater belongs to certain folks or that, that Shakespeare belongs to certain folks um, and doesn't belong to others. But my, my counter-argument to that is that Shakespeare wrote for the masses, which means that if he were writing today, that would be for a multicultural audience, and that would be largely a Latinx audience. So, yes, I grew up this way. I, I grew, you know, these were the, the challenges I faced, but I'm also thinking about the future of the work, it's inclusive. And if we don't think about it that way, then we're not going to have audiences that are going to witness it or listen to it. And that's reminding me of something that you wrote about in your chapter uh, when you you were addressing this issue of, quote unquote, correct pronunciation of Shakespeare. Uh, You were writing about David Crystal, who by the way, was one of the very first guests we ever had on this podcast. And mm-hmm. he's done a lot of research on the original pronunciation, or OP, how actors mm-hmm. spoke on Shakespeare's stage at the time. And his whole point is that it wasn't like Laurence uh, Olivier. Mm-hmm. And 
you describe what he documents, that the sounds on Shakespeare's original stages did not follow any prescriptive or uh, homogenous speech pattern. And the actors all came from different regions of the country, and there was no standard accent. It's really pretty wild. And I understand you took part in a workshop that David did. And with, yeah, with Ben, both. And I think, Mike, I think you were there as well. Ben Crystal. Right, Ben Crystal. And what was really remarkable is, oh my goodness, Opie sounds a lot like my students in East LA. And this is when I was teaching at Cal State Los Angeles. And it, like a light bulb opened up and real, I realized, yes, everything that I had had a theory about about bringing our own prosody, our own rhythmic pattern into this work was true. And now I have evidence that this is the way it sounded. And hence, we can actually own it with greater detail because everyone who first spoke this spoke from with different idiolects. Idiolect is your own personal dialect. Do, can, can you remember any examples from that kind of light bulb moments from that um, workshop? Everybody today says words like invention, musician, salvation, even though we might vary them slightly depending upon our regional background. In Shakespeare's time, people said musician, invention, salvation. There were extra oh, syllables or extra sounds that we may not readily see in the written word, but the way that it would would be pronounced, it added to a joke or added to the understanding and meaning, a different kind of meaning. Like at the prologue for Romeo and Juliet, where it says in the middle, from forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. Well, loins, we know what loins are, they're the way in which you generate children and so on. But when you know that loins was pronounced lines and that the word lines, L-I-N-E-S, was also pronounced lines, then from forth the fatal lines of these two foes, it means not just from their bodily loins, but also from their genealogical lines. Now, it doesn't make a major dramatic difference, but it does add that little bit more to our total knowledge of the playfulness with which Shakespeare's using language. So, when I'm looking at something and I'm playing with it myself with a, my own Puerto Rican idiolect, I will think, oh, I can change the meaning in ways that I think original pronunciation did anyway, so that there's permission to play within the construct, but in a way that it's still sort of like this ancient way of permission because it was the way that it was spoken at the time. The different, the prosody is sound, it's movement, it's music, right? So we're using music to illustrate a point, to communicate a thought, to communicate an idea, to emphasize something. Mike, I want to follow up on that idea uh, with movement first, because I'm curious how you apply this idea that there's no standard correct pronunciation Um, And the way that you write about it is you talk about getting actors to embody the language. So tell us more about what that means, to embody the language. Cynthia and I are both Fitzmaurice voice teachers, and that practice is a physical practice. It is a mixture of bioenergetics and yoga and shiatsu and classical voice training. 
So in order to own a word, you have to spend time with it. You have to get it into your nervous system. You have to play with it. You have to experiment with it. The difference between my generation and the students of today is they have a lot of cultural intelligence and they are identity conscious. They have a strong sense of, I'm a Chicana, I'm a Mexican-American. They have um, their own set of self-identifying practices. And so the one thing about the Fitzmaurice voice work is that it is a consent-based work. So you spend time getting to know the actor, getting to work with the student and allow them to self-identify. And then you can use what they have. And then as you drop a word in and uh, that they don't know, they can riff on words that they do know or images that might... Um, that that unword known, <laughs> that unknown word um, might e evoke. Um, so embodiment is the practice of taking language and feeling it somewhere, maybe in your guts, in your heart, in your ribs, maybe even your left toe, and diving into your imaginary anatomy is useful for an actor. It helps them, it gives them ways to play. And suddenly when you speak the word, you own it. Okay, this is really fascinating. My left toe is just jumping right now. <laughs> but I'd love an example because it sounds like we started this conversation, you were both talking about, well, the way my students express the shame to me is mostly mm. they they freeze. So it sounds like this process of embodying language is a way to thaw the body and thaw the mind and right. thaw the mouth. I'll jump in. You know, voice is, is in sound, is corporal. It comes from the, the body. So every time that we begin to express ourselves, we create sound, we create vibration. So you can feel the vibration of a word, how you form a sound, how you open up a vowel, how a uh, plosive is explosive in your lips or in your the the middle of your vocal tract. And can you either can of you give it. an example of that from your teaching? Sure. Um, let me think of something. So let's take. Actually, I'm about to coach Comedia of Airs here at Arizona State University. And one of the things I said we have to do is we have to start earlier. We have to start so that the students have time to titrate, that means to go slowly into the experience with these two languages, especially when we are here so close to the border where we have all these border dynamics of which language is more dominant. So if we go back to that quote that I was using from the play of um, Antífilo of Mexico, in el mundo soy como una gota de agua. So let's say they didn't know the word gota. We find out that gota means drop, gota, gota. So first thing you would do is you would experience the consonants, g, 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 go, gota. Now the way you pronounce that T is different. It's not gota. So I would help them feel how the tongue might hit the back of the upper front teeth, gota, 
gota, gota. And then we would work on imagery, and maybe we would move our body to have little drops. It seems silly, but this this actual play with the word, now when they come back to it, instead of saying, in el mundo soy como una gota de agua, we, they <laughs> maybe have gotten somewhere where they can go. En el mundo soy como una gota. De agua. They have an image behind that word that they didn't know before. So that process takes time. And when they do that, then they know it. They have it memorized. And when they speak it, it sounds like they are a native speaker. Mm-hmm. That, okay, that really opens it. It illustrates it perfectly. Thank you. And and we should probably remind people that the Comedia of Errors is it's uh, they're twins and one was brought up in Mexico the other one's in the US and you write about it what was so meaningful to you was this in this nuance of accented english of the of the native spanish speaking character that the sounds were of someone who lives in two worlds it, it was actually incredibly moving for me to see the spectrum of my latinx identity and my Latinx language identity in a play. So I'm so excited to be able to share this with my students and dive into the text with them. We're going to have a blast. Well, I think the backdrop to this conversation we're having for some of our listeners might be the experience or the image of Raul Julia. She is my goods, my chattels. She is my house, my household stuff. My field, my barn, my horse, my ox, my ass, my anything. And that might be the the experience that many of our listeners have had of a Latinx actor embracing Shakespeare. Why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardy base, base? who in the lusty stealth of nature take more composition and fierce quality than doth within a doll's tail-tired bed go to the creating a whole tribe of fops. Got to in a sleep and wake? Well then, legitimate Edgar, I must have your land. Cynthia, you wrote that his performances were your earliest influences as an actor? Absolutely. You know, there's something really powerful that happens when we not only see ourselves, but we hear ourselves reflected on stage, film and television. And he inspired me. I immediately understood that I was present. I could be what I wanted to be. Uh, that I could pursue an acting career, especially as a someone who wanted to do classical uh, acting. And you hadn't felt that you had that right. I asked because I, I thought you had a high school teacher who... Oh, yeah, well, this is... this is <laughs> Yes, I did have a high school teacher who... Uh, he said, you know, that there are no Hispanics in American theater. And I was insulted. I was, you know, he told me... Santa Claus didn't exist or something along the lines. And that's when I found that that clipping from uh, Raul Julia. And I brought it to him. It was in one of the Sunday papers, something about Joseph Papp Public Theater. And I brought it to him. And I said, see, see, we are in American theater. Not only that, that's a Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican. 
I belong in American theater. Twas told me you were rough and coy and sullen, and now I find report a very liar, for thou art pleasant, gamesome, passing courteous, but slow in speech, yes, yet sweet are... as springtime flowers. You... Thou canst not frown, thou canst not look askance, nor bite the lip as angry wenches will, nor hast thou pleasure to be cross in talk. But thou with mildness entertains thy words with gentle conference, soft and affable. Why does the world report that Kate doth limp? And he brought his own prosodic movement, his own musicality, his own inflection, his own rhythm, and unapologetically, he was just saying, well, sorry. Shakespeare is too big to be put in a small box. So I'm going to do it my way because my emotions and my words and my manner of being is big and it matches Shakespeare. And I continue to draw from that. In fact, I was watching some of it the other day and I was watching King Lear and I started realizing that it had a completely different meaning to me because Politically, I can infer, wait a minute, he's talking this way, and here's the Puerto Rican talking about the themes of this play. Thou, nature, art my goddess. To thy law, my services are bound. That could also mean about the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For that I am some 12 or 14 moonshines, lag of a brother. This character, here's this character claiming, hey, you know, I have a right to this. And I started thinking, wait a minute, you know, Puerto Ricans, we're American citizens. So it's almost like you're declaring your rights. It was Shakespeare's words, but I was inferring identity and belonging from a different uh, point of view, and it blew my mind. When my dimensions are as well compact, my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue. I want to talk about something you mentioned in your essay, uh, Micah, that you are very intent on making Shakespeare intelligible for the audience when you're working with your Latinx actors. And I wanted to know, in what sense do you mean intelligible? Well, if I'm going to invite the voz cultural, the cultural voice, it becomes unintelligible when my students are trying to be something other than they are. And this isn't just my Latinx students. This is all of my students. Mm. And they come in and they're suddenly doing a British accent and on the assignment, it says, no British accents. <laughs> you know, please bring yourself to the work. You know, So the voz cultural is for all of us. Intelligibility only comes from one's own understanding of the work. And then the audience gets it. Intelligibility comes from clarity in thought, ownership of the language, and a realization of... I guess I want to say of the dynamics. You know, here on the border, these stories 
are universal stories. So the stories, just like in Comedia Vers, they bring out the border dynamics, the treatments of immigrants and the reunification of families and uh, the urgency of empathy in, in our political times. And so when I can get my students to see the themes, to s have them experience the word through that, it's really wonderful. Then the, the voice cultural comes out and, and then the work is intelligible. The only thing I, w I would add to that is that ownership. It belongs to all of us. So when you're speaking something that means something to you, your breath matches that thought. And you take ownership of consonants and vowels. And you know, there is, there's more investment. So yes to everything Micah just said. And also it's just really finding that personal connection, the meaning, and the reason why. It, you're really all making this point that this isn't your work and what we're talking about. It isn't just about acting. And, and, and Cynthia, you start your essay with just a firecracker of a thesis sentence, which is voice, <laughs> speech, and language are an act of rebellion. So looking at the yeah. bigger picture here, what, what are you saying there about the, the, the broader benefits to I don't know, society and to Shakespeare of, of doing the work that you both do. Well, if we silence folks, then we're actually losing. So let's all speak it. The absence of sound is silence. So what are we doing when we silence communities, when we silence people from owning language? So to me, it's like the investment is, yes, it's rebellious. But it's also about daring and making sure that you dare to declare your vocal rights, that you speak up unapologetically like Raul did. Because when we hear ourselves represented on stage and off, we feel empowered to take that same kind of vocal impetus into other parts of our lives. It isn't just about Shakespeare and being on stage. It's about feeling like you can speak up for yourself. And this is just conduit. Mike, you want to add to that? Yeah, I love this idea of rebellion. I love it. I love it. Um, multiculturalism and multilingualism is an asset. And so students don't want to be pigeonholed into only playing Latinx parts. And that's what's so great about Shakespeare is they have an opportunity to really explore in ways that possibly other plays might not allow them to because of the specificity of location. So because of the ability to change locations and change uh, the time period, there's a lot of ability to kind of claim multiculturalism and multi multilingualism in Shakespeare. And what does it do for, for Shakespeare? It makes it better. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say. Of course. <laughs> and I was really so happy you both could come on the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you so much for having us. And I think this is a great conversation about how do we mine the social, political, creative, linguistic power in our bodies. And uh, I think that Shakespeare being a conduit for that is a great thing. So thanks for having us. Cynthia Santos de Cure is an assistant professor of acting at the Yale School of Drama. Micah Espinoza is a professor in the School of Film, Dance, and Theater at Arizona State University. Their chapters on voice coaching appear in Shakespeare and Latinidad, 
a collection of essays in the field of Latinx theater edited by Carla Delegata and Trevor Buffone. Shakespeare and Latinidad was published by Edinburgh University Press in June 2021. Cynthia and Micah were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Any Accent Breaking from Thy Tongue, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Paul Luke at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, Josh Leal at Sun Studios of Arizona in Tempe, and Ryan McAvoy at Yale University Broadcast Studio. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find out more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.